Hello, everyone, and welcome to Catholic Bites, a podcast for busy Catholics. This is Father Conrad, and I am so pleased we have a wonderful guest today, Father, uh, Father sorry, uh, Ed Condon from Catholic News Agency. He's the Washington editor of Catholic News Agency. But more importantly for our podcast today, uh, Ed, you are a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan, and um, we are going to be talking today about baseball. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It is an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Ed, there's, there's, I mean, with Corona Tide and all this kind of stuff going on, I know you're probably starved for baseball. I am starved for baseball. I've taken to watching a like really grainy documentary on the history of the Florida Marlins on online, and that's like just the lowest point I've gotten to. Um, with like all this desire and yearning for baseball, there seems to be like a um, <laughs> a, a desire to maybe change the game quite a bit uh, in order to bring it back. The electronic strike zone, all sorts of different changes in divisions and things like that. And baseball is like a really traditional sport. And that's what's connection, I think, why we can talk about it in a Catholic podcast. What do you feel about um, the, the, the tradition of baseball and whether or not it's something that is, is valuable or, or, or can speak to us as Catholics? I think tradition in baseball is it's almost everything. Um, it's certainly a lot of what makes it important and beautiful and and why it's um, why it holds a special place in the cultural landscape. I mean, I, it's it's also something I'm, I'm kind of hoping, like you said that we were we were staring down the barrel of a lot of really terrible um, proposed innovations, everything from uh, you know robot umpires to, you know, they've already brought in these new rules about the minimum number of pitchers or excuse me, batters that a pitcher has to face and all of this stuff. And they're looking at tinkering with it still further. I'm really hoping that um, when we come out of this Corona virus hiatus, that um, people are going to come back to the ballpark and take a deep breath and go, well, hang on, we've missed the point. Um, we've missed the point about what we love about baseball in the first place, because, you know, what what is what's always driving these these supposed reforms, these kind of, you know, change to survive uh, ideas for baseball is that the game has to be shorter. The game has to be more fast paced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need to attract uh, newer, younger spectators, which I think is kind of hilarious because I, I don't know any, I don't have any kids myself, but all the children, my friends, they all love baseball and they don't <laughs> seem to think the game is too slow. I don't see anyone, you know, looking to hurry up little league games. So I never quite understand what they're basing this on, but you know, baseball is not the NBA and, and nobody who loves the game, wants it to be uh you know we we talk about it as a national pastime and i think that's something that we lose sight of is that baseball isn't we don't primarily conceive of baseball as a sport you know it is a sport it is a game it is a competition it's all those things but it's a pastime that's how we refer to it culturally is the national pastime and the whole point of a pastime is it's leisure it's something that you do to take a break from everything else that it's a pause in time it's something you do for the sake of doing it because doing it is in itself good. It's not necessarily, you know, results oriented. You know, there's a winner and a loser at the end of a game of baseball, but you're not playing against the clock. You're just letting it happen, which I think is something that we're missing now more than anything. You know, you talk about um, missing baseball right now. I mean, I'm missing it like a like a hole in my heart. And, and I think a lot of it is because of this, you know, we're all stuck sheltering in place and things like that. And, um, you know, at least for me, working in the media and stuff, the news cycle right now never ends. You know, you get up, you're at work, you go to bed, you're still at the office. But in the middle of all this, there's really only one thing happening culturally for all of us, you know, in politics, in our families, in our church. 
um, in our entire national conversation and in our private lives in our homes, there's only one thing happening and there's no break. <laughs> you know, we don't have a pastime. There's nothing we can do to change the subject, to give ourselves breathing space. And I think that's what we're missing so much. And I think baseball is like a perfect emblem of that right now. It's so true. And, you know, it strikes me uh, when, when, you, when you talk about it in terms of leisure and in terms of, uh, of not necessarily the sport so much as the activity. I, I had a, a really good friend who's a priest of Belfast, Ireland, and I brought him to a baseball game his first time going. I asked him what he knew about baseball. He says, I saw the scene in the movie, the Robin Williams movie Hook, and that's all I know about baseball is that one scene in the movie. <laughs> and so I, I took him to a, a, to a Nationals game here, and... As I began to like explain to him what was going to happen, I realized that there are all these things that we take for granted because they're a part of our cultural identity and they're a part of our bones. Like, okay, at this point, we're all going to stand up and sing a song from 1905 that every child in the entire country knows by heart. And I realized there was something like quasi-liturgical about about baseball that it's it it it, it does more for us than just entertain us. It, it it brings us together as a country. It brings us together as a as diverse people. It, it's something that we all can share in in more than just you know a way a, a, an NBA or an NFL game does. I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you talk about it as being almost liturgical. I think there's a lot of that. I think it's a reason why um, a lot of really uh, really smart Catholics that I know all tend to love baseball is I think we recognize an echo of um, a certain amount of our our human desire and behavior that's present in this. You know, one of the things that I, I always love about baseball, and one of the reasons I hate the idea of robot umpires, for example, is that there there's a there's um there's a difference between people who are umpires, there there's a difference between people who are playing, and there's a difference between people who are watching the game in the stands. But they're all part of a common endeavor. And there's a link between all three. And I think there is something liturgical about this. It's something, you know, between the assembly and a priest mm, saying mass yeah. and, you know, things like that. They're, they're not happening in distinction. One's not watching the other as a purely as an outside observer. But the act of watching makes you part of what's going on. And, you know, if you think about what's so terrible and what's lost if you have robot umpires is how an umpire is calling the strike zone is something that's kind of fluid and dynamic and alive and it's responsive to to the way the pitcher's throwing it's responsive to how the pitcher's you know throwing signals and in, in coaching the pit in coaching the pitcher through the different uh, batters that are coming up but also the umpire is whether he thinks he is or not is in a way responsive to the noises of the crowd mm. that if the if the fans think he's given them a raw deal then they're, he's going to hear about it and he might end up tightening up the zone you don't know and you know there's the, there's a sort of communion being formed in the act of watching the game and then i think that does it's something that does echo liturgy what do you what would you say to someone i i listen to a lot of um uh, different kind of sports podcasts or, or, or watch on ESPN. And, and sometimes people will say, you know, well, baseball is almost too traditional. And a lot of this is nostalgia for the good old days. What would you say the distinction is between nostalgia in baseball and, and tradition in baseball? Well, tradition is something alive. Tradition is something that you you're still doing now and still has meaning and value as much today as when the tradition began. That you know, it's it's a sort of common walking in your own history into the future at the same time. That it's you know, in the words of the liturgy, from the rising of the sun to its setting. That it you know it it encompasses not just um, geography but time. 
that it's it's a sort of umbrella unification through a common action. Nostalgia is, you know, the pain of something lost. It's a sort of bittersweet feeling for something you don't have anymore. It's like looking at a photograph. And a living tradition is is very different to nostalgia. And I think one of the ways you know that what baseball has is a living tradition and is not just nostalgia for a bygone era is go to an NFL game. I mean, don't. I don't recommend it. Why, why anyone would subject themselves to that, I can't imagine. But you know, I've been to maybe two in my entire life. But the crowd at an NFL game is very, very different to the crowd at a baseball stadium. You know, you think about what we've had going on, in, you know, in, in the last couple of years about people kneeling and standing and the national anthem and you know all these sort of you know weird, overtly divisive, performative aspects um, from one side and another at, that take over football games. You'd never see this at a baseball game, you know, everybody stands up and takes their hat off um, during the national anthem at the beginning. And if somebody's, you know, ordering a beer in the concourse and doesn't realize what's going on, he's going to get looks and get shushed or whatever. And, and it's not because it's an overt act of patriotism necessarily, or, you know, God forbid nationalism. It's because this is what we do. This is part of coming together. This is how we emphasize that we are a body in all of this. And I don't think any of this is deliberate. You know, I don't think that there's a sort of overtly um, and self-conscious liturgical mindset to baseball. But I do think that um, the crowd at a game looks for these markers of this is what we do together. This is how we stay in touch with who we are, not just our past, but who we are as a crowd. It brings people together mm-hmm. that, you know, um, was it Augustine who said to sing is to pray twice? I forget yeah. which one of the fathers yeah, it was. Augustine. Yeah, that's, but that's the Augustine, same thing. Supposedly. <laughs> was, uh, supposedly, allegedly. And most things, I, I find that, you know, if, if someone doesn't know who said it, they usually credit it to either Augustine or Thomas. And, you know, <laughs> between the two of them, you're usually right half the time anyway. That's but, right. You know, it, it's the same is true for all kinds of actions, that there's a unifying aspect to a common action, that it forms a kind of communion amongst the people. And that has a real importance. I think that's so true, and, and I think the way of looking at it as as a living tradition, we can talk. We talk, you know, about in the liturgy. We talk in in dogma about this kind of organic development, and an organic development can allow for change so long as the change doesn't change the 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 substance of the tradition. And so, like baseball has undergone change over the years. You know, we don't the like the the dirt ball era and all these kind of different things are um are behind. You know, there there's there's change throughout throughout the century. You know. But it doesn't it doesn't subtract from from the whatness, the, the, the essence of, of the thing, you know, just like the dogma of the church has grown over the centuries uh, from a small seed. But and to this great flowering as we have it today, you know, Thomas Aquinas is a lot more in a certain sense than than what the early apostles were preaching. But at the same time, he's nothing more because it's still the same plant. And, and I think that's what we see in, in baseball that all the way back to like the, the 19th century, there's there's a common core uh, that that grows and develops together organically to what we have today. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I th- I think it's entirely true. And um, you know, th- this is the kind of thing that you you see very rarely in sports. Um, this idea that there's a core to the game that is that is somehow more than and even um, higher than the actual game itself. Mm. You know, you wouldn't find this in football or basketball or or soccer or football or whatever you want to call it. Um, it, It's just not there. The game is all there is, Um, but this isn't true in baseball. And I mean, actually I would say it's, it's also uh, to a certain extent true of cricket as well. And I think there's something to be said for um, the similarities between the two games 
uh, I know everyone thinks of uh, cricket as a sort of, you know, archetypally um, <laughs> aristocratic English tradition, but it's actually not. Um, if, you, if you dig into the history of it, it was like baseball. Um, it has its roots in a sort of uh, side betting, um, very blue collar, very sort of seedy working class kind of um, history. And also, you know, the place where it's most popular in the world is, is India, not England. Yeah, it's true. Um, and actually, the first international cricket match was played between the United States and Canada. Hmm. Um, you know, cr- before there was baseball in this country, there was there was cricket. That's what people played. And um, you know, over the over the years, um, I think it was mostly because of space that it was easier to play baseball in cities than than cricket. If you're you know if you were a kid in the in the streets, um, it, it sort of drifted away, and that's how we got baseball. But I think there's a common core to this of you know a leisurely pursuit. Uh, you know, spending. I mean, I remember um, I've gone to games where, you know, I fully expect to be there all day, or at least hope I'm going to be. And mm-hmm. and you know, you never look at your watch, and I think there's something to that. Yeah, it's true, and and there's there, there's something about the ability to reflect in the midst of the game, uh, to to reflect on the situation, on the strategy, on the um. And I think that's one of the reasons why baseball isn't as appealing uh, at first uh, to young people. Maybe is. It, it it takes some it like like any virtue it takes some time before it becomes something habitual that you can really enjoy you know like you can't you can't really enjoy being temperate until you've practiced it a little bit but once you have then it's then it's really good and it's the same thing i think with baseball and i i freely admit this for myself when i was younger i i liked the excitement of of football and of basketball better especially growing up in chicago during the um michael jordan era it was like way more exciting than than, than the cubs who were losing uh but as i kind of grew and i and i went to a couple more games and i and i started to understand things the the leisure of it you know it you you start to understand and be able to enter into it more and you realize the richness that's there it's it's a higher pa- a higher pleasure in a certain sense it is. It's also much more, like you said, a much more reflective thing. Have you have you read Infinite Baseball? I have not. I would strongly recommend it. It's written by um, a, a philosopher uh, called Alva Noe, and he's. It, it's basically just a series of essays and articles he wrote while watching baseball games. Um, and <laughs> and and one of the things that he draws out in this that I absolutely love the moment I read it, and I hadn't thought of it that way before, but he's so right. Is Baseball, the the act of watching baseball, the act of playing baseball requires that it be watched because a lot of what matters in baseball is not just what happened, but whose fault it was. That baseball, <laughs> no, but uh, you know, it's not true. even it's true. It's so true. Yeah, the assignation of of credit and blame is intrinsic to the sport. That it's not just a question of oh, well, he hit the ball and made it to first is well was it an er- you know did he drive a runner in was it an earned run you know did he get through a gap in the infield well was it an error or did he you know that the whole thing is all about not just what happened but how did it happen and why did it happen and whose fault was it and you know was did the batter do exceptionally well did the fielder do badly did the pitcher you know saves and all of these other things these are these are concepts and terms that are fundamentally subjective and they're subjective in a way that requires us to be watching it. And I think this is something that, you know, you you can't expect to see. And this is one of the things that scares me about the idea of a major league season behind closed doors, you know, yeah. if we get later on into the summer is to not have baseball being watched in person by a crowd changes the nature of the game. And I think that's something that we need to really think about. 
Um, not just in terms of the game of baseball, but also, you know, how do we relate to each other as communities of people if we aren't all together doing something? I think this is something that you're seeing also um, in the experience of a lot of Catholics right now, watching mass online for the, you know, for an extended period of time because churches are closed, that the assembly is a core part of what is happening, that, you know, when we're called together as a people, that means something and it has a value. I mean, you know, the mass is the mass, even if it's just the priest saying it, for sure. But there is something to the assembly that this is, you know, something Justin, St. Justin uh, made very clear in his sort of first apology for how the Eucharist is celebrated. Is he says, the beginning of the Eucharist is that the whole community comes together, whether in the city or in the country. That, you know, this is this is something that's deep within our nature as people. It's so true. And, and you know, that, that analogy with um, watching mass versus being at mass I think is spot on because you know the 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 common perception or misperception of the role of the assembly in mass is that they're the spectators and the priest is performing and and I've even had people say that to me like oh you're the spa- you're the star father of this show I'm like no I'm not that's not the point you know the the point is that we are all doing this together and there's something and if you even I've experienced it through the television but like when you're at the ballpark and you're willing your team on there is something like transformative there where you're 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 in a, not in the same way as the eucharist but the in which you're part you're you're going into every pitch like your heart and your will is there and you're not just watching something to entertain you you're you're a part of a drama that is so much bigger than yourself absolutely anyone who thinks that the crowd doesn't affect the outcome of the game or can't affect the outcome of the game has never sat in the bleachers at wrigley field um <laughs> because even if they can't make the cubs win they can certainly make the other team have a really bad day i've seen it that is that is very true and that brings us to a, a very good point because not only do we want to talk about baseball we want to talk about uh, the cubbies because that is really i mean if you're talking about tradition in baseball the, the chicago cubs are are the the most important uh, part of that you know you can argue and and being a cubs fan is a particularly interesting and difficult and informative and virtue building activity um so ed what what is it like how how do you um uh what do you say about about being a, a cubs fan and growing in virtue <laughs> I well, I you know, I maintain that I learned a lot about the virtues by being a Cubs fan. Um, of course, all this was before 2016, when it was considered you know a fundamental tenet of the faith of being a Cubs fan. Well, they're not going to win. <laughs> of um, course, <laughs> they're, they're absolutely not going to go to the World Series, but they're probably also not going to win any given game they're playing. But what I found interesting about being a Cubs fan growing up was you know they had they were great teams. There were teams that by rights should have been amazing, should have blown the doors off people and they still lost. You know, when in the late 80s, sort of like the the teams between sort of 87 and 89 were the ones where I first learned to love baseball, you mm-hmm. know, watching games with my dad and my grandpa. Um, th- those were my teams. But like you're, you're talking about teams with multiple Hall of Famers on the team at once. You know, guys like Andre Dawson, Ryan Sandberg, Greg Maddox, you know, all of them playing at once and having great performances and still the team would lose. But you were still witnessing something heroic going on because these guys played. I mean, um, have you ever seen the video or read Ryan Sandberg's uh, speech when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame? No, I haven't. I've been watching old Ryan Sandberg highlights this past couple of months, but uh, I have not seen that speech. Actually, I got to go check it out. I would, I would strongly recommend it because the whole premise of his speech is what he calls respect. 
um, respect for the game, respect for the other team. But I, I would, I'd call it virtue because it is virtue of a kind. It's a kind of leadership that I think we recognize as being fundamentally virtuous. When I was growing up as a kid, um, my grandpa would talk to me about these players. And I remember him talking to me about Ryan Sandberg. And what he said was, this is a guy who worked harder than any Yankee or anything like that. But he never got fined. He never got tossed out of a game. And he always did the things for the team. That this is, you know, he had like a near perfect fielding percentage uh, at second base. Like near perfect. Like it was 0.997 or something <laughs> insane like that. But it, I mean, that's the kind of effort that comes from looking for the team. You know, this is a guy who was hitting, you know, he could have been a home run champion. Like yeah. he would hit 30 home runs in a season, no problem. But he was the best bunner on the team. Yeah. Not naturally. He made himself be that because that's what he felt he had to give the team at a particular time. You know, it's a kind of um, leadership of service that it's not about, you know, getting up to the bait. So much of what we, you know, saw in the steroid era and stuff, it's, you know, guys like Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, you know, is getting up there, you know, bulked out of their minds and trying to blast it out of the park every time. That's not a leadership of service. That's no. performative. That's pride. And that was not the kind of thing you, you saw in the Cubs teams of my youth. Like my favorite player was Andre Dawson. Mm-hmm. Who now, I don't know if you know this, but now what he did what he in his retirement, he, he did some work in the front office, I think, for the Marlins for a little while. Um, but in addition to that, he now owns a funeral home in Florida. Oh, no and he's way. a mortician. <laughs> and he's given multiple interviews about like helping families through the grieving process and stuff. Like This is a deeply reflective man yeah. in addition to being a Hall of Fame baseball player. But you know, do you know the story of how he arrived at the Cubs? No, I don't. I'm, 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 this, is, this is important. This I, is, this is fundamental. He had taken his, his knees were wearing out and he was playing for the Expos and his knees were wearing out and he needed to find a team that played on natural grass. He couldn't play on AstroTurf all the time anymore. <laughs> and so he was trying to sign it and no one would look at him. He was a great batter. He was a great fielder. Everybody knew this, but like his knees have gone. No one's going to, you know, no one's going to sign yeah, yeah. him. Why take a chance in this guy? So he turned up to Cubs spring training with his man, with his agent and he offered the Cubs a blank contract. He basically said, I will play for you. Just fill in the number. I don't care what it is. I just want to show you what I'm going to do. That is like so if you awesome. want to pay me one dollar, whatever. I don't care. Here's a blank contract. Pay me whatever you want. Just give me a chance, coach. That is so awesome. <laughs> and he he was league MVP that year. Wow! Wow! That's fantastic for a last place team. <laughs> like this, and so I and I can remember sitting on my grandfather's couch watching the Cubs play and every time Andre Dawson would come up to bat my grandpa would tell me about this uh-huh. would say you know this is how you know you know what he did he came to spring training with a blank contract and this is what a real man does this is humility and this is and I mean, literally my grandpa in a sense catechized me on the Cubs you know like this is how you learn the virtues is this is leadership through humility this is how you serve the team this is how you you know in the words of the church take the last place and you know it's something that really stuck with me what then do you make of um of uh, I've been I've been wrapping my mind around this because you know for me too growing I grew up the the Cubs that I first started really following was Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor and um and uh, like 20, 2003, 2004. and the two thousand three Fireball season oh gosh and uh, and and Steve Bartman and all the all the rest and uh, um the uh, um I, I I so I grew up as a you know no knowing that I was a fan of the lovable losers and I and I admit that when I first moved to Washington I was a little tempted to try and switch fan bases because I was like oh I'm in the city I can watch the games I can I can I can see the players and and they're sometimes they're winning a little bit uh, and um, there's something though about Cubs fandom that like 
the, this this long suffering uh, love of the team, even when they're when they're when they're losing, and in fact, loving the team and loving critiquing the team when they're losing, uh, and not you know not turning away from it. But then, what do you make of that now that they've actually won the World Series? I'll be honest with you. I, this makes me kind of um, a weirdo, although maybe not. I, I I know a couple of Cubs fans who felt something like this, although you know. People try not to say it out loud, although I suppose, you know, it's been a few years now since the World Series, so people are a little more comfortable saying it. I was part of me was kind of weirdly let down after <laughs> the twenty sixteen World Series, you know? Like it was like, well, what what do we do now? Like what I don't understand. What, what happens next? I, I, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to be a Cubs fan if they're gonna be in contention for the World Series every year. Mercifully they haven't been. Um but there was a way in which it was almost kind of anticlimactic, not in a sense of, oh, it wasn't as good as, you know, I thought it would be. It was fantastic. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like I, this is this is how I've defined the experience of watching baseball is virtue in a losing team. That's right. And it, it felt very weird. I mean, I remember um, just before game seven, uh, it was all souls day. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, and I remember going to mass and praying for my grandma, my grandfather, who, you know, had been dead for a couple of years by then and everything else and kind of th- and and this was the same experience that I think a lot of Cubs fans had. Like I was watching all of the games uh, through the NCLS uh, or sorry, the NL, ugh, NLCS and the World Series. And I was living in London at the time um, and I spent every game on the phone with my dad mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we were talking a little bit about the game, but we were mostly talking about. My grandfather. We were mostly talking about our family. We were mostly talking about the tradition of my family being Cubs fans. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that was an experience a lot of people had. That and it was something almost in a way that united uh, the fan base of Cubs. Is it was a shared experience of you know well my grandfather never lived to see the Cubs win the World Series. My father probably won't live to see the Cubs World Series, and I probably won't live to see the Cubs World Series. <laughs> and it was in you know in a way a sort of way in which we were bound together. And now we've had this sort of generational break of you know after 108 years it's, we're resetting the clock. And and I find that kind of interesting. And I find the way in which Cubs fans emotionally relate to that um, to be a very strange thing. Because in a sense, it was never what we liked about the team. Or at least it was never what I liked about the team was the chance that they might win. Yeah. There was a sort of grim determination of like, well, we're better. We're somehow more pure because we love it yes, anyway. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I've been trying to think, place the World Series in, in, in context. And, and I've, I've thought of it almost in the analogy of the, the fall and, and redemption. Like, we... The, the the Cubs fell, you know, uh, and whatever, if it was the curse of the billy goat or whatever it was, and then they struggled under adversity but never could could arrive at, at, at like, the glory of of, um, of a World Series title and by, by their own effort. And like you said, you know, there's all these, like, amazing Cubs teams that never got there, whether it was because of the Miracle Mets or because of whatever, you know, they never were able to, to clinch the, the, the final eschatological glory of winning the, the World Series. And the thing that struck me a little bit about the 2016 series, although there was a ton of work that went into it, you know, and, you know, Theo Epstein deserves a lot of credit and all that kind of stuff. It seems like it kind of like caught everyone by surprise. Like, I know a lot of people said like, oh, yeah, they're ahead of schedule in winning this World Series. And they haven't been able to replicate it since. You know, we had a lot of really talented teams that just 
you know, it, it even though it was the same group of guys basically who who won the World Series in 2016 haven't been able to get anywhere, and it makes me almost happy that it seems like this World Series was was a gift, like a, a, a gift of grace as opposed to an earned reward. You know, like that uh, we as sinful men can never can never attain heaven through our own uh, effort. We can just strive to be as virtuous as we can, and and then we can accept the gifts of grace that come to us and. And that's that's how I've been able to rationalize it a little bit in my own mind that this has been not necessarily a um, <laughs> and the the product of a super team, you know, but but rather like this serendipitous wonderful thing that happened to happen to us, and now we go back to to striving as best we can, but recognizing we're probably going to lose. I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, the 2016 team had had some great players on it, but the reason they won is because they had a lot of decent players who had MVP level exactly. seasons all at the same time exactly that, you know, in a sense it was, you know, a moonshot. And I think you're, I think you're right. I think if, if you, if you're going to see the Cubs win and you're going to be able to love them and still have them be the Cubs, I think you're right. That's the way you want it to happen is you don't want it to be this sort of, you know, Yankee built juggernaut that, you know, is almost inevitably going to win by the numbers, but to, to see it as really just a grace. And, you know, I think it's the best, way of looking at it awesome well okay we're, we're gonna before this gets too long although i could go on talking about the cubs uh, all evening uh i wanted to ask your opinion as a cubs fan who lives in washington like i do um what do you think about the nationals uh world series win and what do you think about the phenomenon of baby shark uh the nationals world series win was kind of cute i guess um <laughs> You know, I'll, to be honest with you, the Nationals World Series, so much as it means anything or will mean anything uh, in in history, I think it will be primarily defined as the people who slayed the cheating Astros. That's right. That's right. And that's important in itself. I, I mean, Nats fans are a funny thing. I only know two people in Washington who I'd consider to be actual Nats fans. I think a lot of people in D.C. who, you know, wear a, wear a Walgreens hat um, are really more likely – Got, you know, they're people from somewhere else because so many people in D.C. are, you know, have come there from somewhere else. And, you know, the, the Nationals is just kind of who you watch while you're waiting for your team to come through town. And, you know, my theory is that uh, D.C. has exactly the same number of home and away fans for every game. <laughs> it's true. Um, but who they are changes depending on which team's in town. Yeah, it's, that's very true. I, you know, and in fact, I was watching um, uh, one of the local news channels here during the World Series uh, run and um, – they had a bunch of uh, quote-unquote Nats super fans on, and one of them was my friend from college, and I knew for a fact that he was the most diehard Red Sox fan I have ever met. And there he is on TV being like this big Nats fan, and and I, I, I confronted him afterwards. How can you do that? Are you how are you betraying the Red Sox? He says, uh, "Look at my word. Go rewatch it again and, and listen to my words. I never, you know, I parsed it very, very carefully, not to not to deny the Red Sox. But I thought it was so ironic that they had to to, to get a Nats uh, super fan. They had to get a Red Sox fan on on the television. It was exactly what you meant, home and away, depending on who was who was there. Yeah, I think this is true of a lot of things in Washington. I I think the only team that I've observed a real diehard local following in the years that I've lived in D.C. has been the Redskins. I think every other team, people just kind of like, if they're doing well, that's cute. But, you know, nobody really, nobody bleeds for the Washington Nationals the way people do for the Cubs. It's true. Good. Well, we can we can uh, rely on that and make ourselves feel superior to, to local Nationals uh, fandom. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for coming on and talking baseball. I appreciate it so much. This is awesome. 
It's my absolute pleasure. I hope you'll have me back. Oh, yeah. And anytime you want. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you, everyone, uh, for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to listen to other great Catholic talks, you can find us on CatholicBitesPodcast.com or you can find us on iTunes. And also check out Ed is on an awesome podcast as well. In fact, it's much better than this one, uh, the Catholic News Agency Editor's Desk Podcast. I listen to it every week. It's fantastic, Ed. And the best part, to be honest, is when your host, uh, J.D. Flynn, uh, allows you to talk about baseball. So that's why what inspired me to have you on uh, our show today. Um, so keep up the, the awesome work on that. Um, I really appreciate it. Of course, of course. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and God bless you all.